welcome, Claire, welcome. I guess I'd like to start, Uli, by asking you a little bit about your collecting life before you started collecting Chinese art, because you did collect Western art first. And so could you just tell us a little bit about the focus of that part of your collection before you discovered China? I grew up in a standard Swiss household. We had 19th century paintings on the wall. And at some point I realized I never saw them. And they didn't speak to me. And it just was not my thing. Mm -hmm. And when I uh, turned a student, um, met some friends who were very involved in the contemporary art. And so I joined them in going to exhibitions, galleries, look at images. And uh, all of a sudden I felt there is flesh and blood to it, to the contemporary art. So that was a kind of opening up to art in my case. And is that, that term, flesh and blood, is that still a criterion that you use when you're considering what to buy for this collection? Because I, I read that you, your focus in terms of what you've collected is to try and collect like an institution and to put your own private taste to one side. So that doesn't sound as if it is the same approach. Uh, it's not the same. Uh, I'm describing my attitude as an individual at that time. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, I bought like anybody would, you know, it is to one's personal taste provided you have the means, which I didn't have. So I remember my, I think my first painting was a, like a small abstract painting because I couldn't understand. And I thought if it's around me, maybe I will learn. And since somebody had punched a hole in it, it was very cheap. So <laughs> I could afford it as a student. Uh, but later in China, uh, at some point I realized nobody was collecting in any other but random way, neither institution or individual. And this is the biggest culture space in the world, yet nobody paying attention to what the contemporary artists were doing in a period which in hindsight I think will be considered very important. Mm. So uh, I thought this is just very strange. And in a kind of self-appointed mission I thought, I would collect, rather like an institution in China should collect, create a document, mirror the Chinese art production along the timeline across all media. Of course, it's, it's, it's an attempt. Nobody could actually do it in a complete way, but uh, that's what I had in mind. But I heard you describe it as um, more of a spider's web than a string of pearls. So can you explain that particular aspect? So you're very interested in context, aren't you? Yes, and I'm, I'm impressed you have really read about <laughs> and researched about what I said about collecting. Uh, earlier on we talked about the, the, the approach of a private collector, mm. and I, I think we all start that same way. I mean, you have walls and uh, you <laughs> need to yeah, cover them somehow, and. You start with the two-dimensional things first, and uh, then you progress to what I think is a very important decision is to find a focus for collecting. And most collections we all see lack that focus. There are an uh, accumulation of artworks. So I was very fortunate to find that focus with Chinese contemporary art. So if I look at collections, this to me is the most interesting uh, yeah, step two, you know, have these collectors found a focus. It doesn't matter what it is, mm -hmm. it could be anything, mm -hmm. but that would give it the core and the soul and the structure. And then uh, I think comes, yeah, maybe that next step, uh, which I may have referred to as a, as a string of pearls where people will collect masterpieces so-called masterpieces, pro provided, again, they have the funds to do this. And uh, of course, this is fairly risk-free strategy, mm -hmm. uh, particularly once uh, yeah, it's acknowledged masterpieces. Uh, so that's one way of collecting. But say, in my way, creating a document, I felt the collection should rather be like a web 
a web, meaning, yes, of course, you must have masterpieces as well, even though we may debate whether today's masterpieces will be tomorrow's masterpieces. But uh, you need to create a web that explains the masterpieces and that creates the context and um, of maybe so-called second or third tier artists as they may be seen today. And these works then charge upon another and, and they create this web to understand a whole context. So I'm trying to do that. Okay, Claire, um, if Uli um, has been, in, in a sense, a pioneer, you, you too have been a pioneer. You were one of the earliest people to go across to China as a student um, in the 70s, in the late 70s, I think. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your experience as a student in China and the focus of your interest when you went there and how that's evolved? Um, one of the interesting things about working on this project was that um, the time that Oli first went to China um, was exactly the same time that I first found myself in China um, in the late uh, 1970s, 78. And, um, you know, so there was a sort of, um, I guess, a synergy, you know, and, and a kind of a meeting of minds um, that occurred along the way that we, neither of us were, you know, was aware of at the beginning. But for me, I mean, I'd done Chinese language at this girls' school in Melbourne, and so I'd had Chinese, and I was dissatisfied with what I was doing at university, and there was an opportunity to go to China. Um, you know, ever since the establishment of diplomatic relations between China and Australia, the Australian government has um, created these scholarships for Australian students to go to China to, to do further study. So I was very fortunate to, to um, be able to go to China in that way. And so I did a year of intensive language, and then, I don't want to bore people too much, but uh, the Central Academy of Fine Art um, uh, began to offer um, placements for students for the first time. And actually, uh, Jocelyn Che, who's sitting here in the front row, was instrumental um, in this. Um, Jocelyn um, had been cultural um, counselor in the Australian Embassy in the first, in the first sort of diplomatic kind of representation. Um, in China, and then she was later head of the Australia-China Council, one of the funding bodies. And so I think it was Jocelyn who, in fact, um, brought this um, to my attention through the cultural attaché, um, knowing of my interest in art. And so uh, there were three of us, th three, three uh, foreign students who um, uh, ended up uh, enrolling um, in, the, in the only department that was open to foreign students at that time the um, uh, Department of Chinese Painting, Russian Ink Painting. Uh, the, the year later, the Art History Department opened up to foreign students and some Americans and British and other students came. But there was a ma um, guy from Austria, Fritz Settle, a woman from Pakistan, Tanya Asani, and myself. So this was an extraordinary time. Um, you know, we were there in the first, uh, with the first group of students who'd re-entered the universities after the end of the Cultural Revolution. So. It was a very um, austere and uh, quite fascinating period. And of course, there was no art market. I mean, you know, Uli talks about him being in China at that time, as we heard, interested in art, looking around at the um, work that was being produced and not really finding much that spoke to him. Well, I was in the classroom kind of, you know, being instructed in this uh, type of art that really was so bizarre um, that, you know, it meant that I ended up uh, abandoning kind of creative practice and <laughs> channeling my own knowledge um, and, and learning into art history. And it was the most amazing sort of training in order to understand this um, very strange history um, that had happened. You know, a country with a great tradition of Russian ink painting um, that had gone, then gone through this period of turmoil, communism, and then this gradual opening up. And as part of that um, study, were artists brought in, uh, were you brought into contact with artists at all, practicing artists? Yeah, well, they, I mean, the, uh, the academies were where the, the artists were, and there were particular kinds of artists, but there were oil painters and there were sculptors and there were, you know, leading artists, people who were regarded as leading artists. This was the elite academy in China. And in fact, Sun Yuan and Peng Yu, whose work we see in old people's home, they're graduates 
from the Central Academy of Fine Art and many of the artists who are in the Go Figure exhibition. Feng Li Jun, who's on the cover of the book, he's also a graduate of the Central Academy of Fine Art. These were the places, these were refuges really. They're where the stu students went to learn something, to nourish themselves after the end of the Cultural Revolution. And this was a place of relative freedom where there was access to materials and mm -hmm. ideas. You could have access to the kinds of publications that had previously been produced that were not normally available. So it was a um, sort of a hothouse environment that became more so as China then gradually sort of became more relaxed. So Uli, when you um, first got to China as a businessman and you were, you were there doing various business deals for uh, companies there, how did you find where the art was being made? How did you find studios that you could get access to? Who were the navigators who helped you? Actually, in the very first years, 79, 80s, uh, I could not go to see the artist directly. Uh, it would have very much endangered what I was doing myself, mm. building that uh, first joint venture company between China and the outside world. And it would also have endangered the artist mm -hmm. if I would have visited them directly. Exactly. So I had to look at the material, photos, talk to middle men, middle women, uh, <laughs> see, see what artists were doing. But I wasn't very excited. I was looking at it with a Western eye and looking for the forefront of contemporary art. And it certainly wasn't there in China. But I had search for another access to the Chinese reality through the contemporary art, uh, other than given as a business person, always always accompanied and observed. Mm. And I, I could get some of that, yes. Am I right in thinking that Ai Weiwei was one of the people who helped you and introduced you to other artists and helped you find studios that you could visit later on? No, I met with him in mid-90s. Mm -hmm. By that time, I had already uh, you know, made my way into the art community. And uh, he had just returned from the US. And for him also, uh, it was a new sight to see what the Chinese artists were doing at the time, or what they were not doing, or what they were not knowing at the time. Mm -hmm. So when you started to discover where you could go and, and which studios were accessible to you without, as you say, putting, putting people at risk, can you just talk a little bit about um, that first phase of collecting and what you became interested in and about the kind of art that was being made pre-1989, pre-Chenamin Square and post? Well, the main difference uh, being the subject matter before the artists were very, um, very motivated to also engage in building this new China, because after death of Mao, end of Cultural Revolution, the beginning of the 80s, uh, yeah, there was a, a, a lot of enthusiasm about building this new country, and the artists wanted to play a role in this, and then there were both about big topics and society and the like. And after 89, uh, there was a lot of resignation, and uh, yeah, this painting, which is on the cover, uh, very much illustrates the mood at the time of uh, uh, resignation and a, a kind of cynicism yeah. uh, and helplessness. So the artist turned more to identity question and uh, uh, yeah, turned more inwards rather than to the society. Mm. Claire, can you talk a little bit about that pre and post-1989 sort of watershed moment from your perspective? Um, I wasn't there. Um, I mean, I, after I left China in 1981, I then visited um, and began visiting very regularly. But I wasn't, you know, in China in those years immediately um, leading up to 1989. Um, but of course, I've become very familiar with it, you know, through my awareness of the of the art. Um, and so, well, I, I think as 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 Uli said, and as we heard from, I mean, it was very interesting hearing listening to Fang Li Jun, there are two paintings that are in the exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, the one on the cover and then another one of a very large swimmer. 
um, and he was talking about the change in his work. And he, he really sees, he spoke about 1989 being such a watershed. Mm. And I think it was for all artists, even though this is not always, you know, openly um, discussed. But he did speak in very graphic, or, you know, in very kind of clear terms, I guess, of, of the... Um, you know, the exploratory nature of a lot of the practice, um, you know, uh, before then. Um, and then, yeah, the challenges that individuals faced after that period and, and, um, and how they would respond to that in their work. And he uh, said that, you know, he felt very heavy-hearted for a very long time, but realised that if he, if he continued to be negative, um, and, and there are a number of works in the exhibition that I selected to actually, you know, evoke something of the period, you know, in the years immediately after 1989, and he, he said that he just needed to actually change his mindset, um, you know, that he could not go on being completely pessimistic, um, otherwise he'd go mad, and so he started to open out, you know, his canvases, but this took quite a lot, quite, quite a long time, and so this big picture of a swimmer and you don't, well, it looks like a swimmer, but you don't know whether he's swimming or drowning or floating mm. or what. It's a very indeterminate painting. And so you get, you know, the artist, this, this idea of this, the cynicism really takes hold. And you get artists um, uh, using very indirect language to um, communicate this ambivalence. But you also see, I mean, if we look at the screen on the left here, um, there's, a, there's an environmental message in some of the artwork and video and photography work that I saw in Uli's collection when I saw it in Ireland. There are lots of photographs of degraded landscapes, urban landscape that is overtaking the countryside, um, ecological disaster. So at what point did the environment come into play in, in the art that was being made? Uh, the, the first work I saw con conscientiously about the environment uh, was a work uh, which depicts the uh, inhabitants of a village. Mm -hmm. And the artist took water out of their local river, froze it into blocks, and built this huge block of ice blocks in the, in the square of the village and had the inhabitants clean that ice, which was very dirty. And then the ice melts and, and uh, uh, several photos record that performance type thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that was like 94, 95. I think that is when it started to enter uh, a public's mind that this is an issue and will, come, will become an ever bigger mm -hmm. issue. So, you know, we were talking like pre and post 89, but then in the 90s, other, other topics took hold like uh, yeah, environment, maybe later, but first urbanism, destruction, construction, and consumerism became yeah. very big. Yes, consumerism and materialism are, of course, the new mm. themes, aren't they, as well? So would you like to say something about that? Well, I was just, um, you know, looking at the Wang Jianwei's wonderful video, and I hope you have a chance to look at it. I mean, so many of these works you can interpret in so many different ways. Mm. You can pick up different motifs, and so I think, you know, that's, that's a very conscious... Um, thing for many of the artists, you know, not wanting to fix the material and, but really, you know, for the artists um, looking at their own society, I mean, one of the kind of really conscious things about this exhibition was to look at the artworks as the products of individuals looking at themselves and their own worlds and trying to make sense of it, you know, to themselves and then, you know, through the exhibition to us. Um, and I think, you know, you, you see with the rise of documentary photography, of documentary filmmaking, you know, this real fascination with um, what life is like in China, you know, and, and in many ways, you know, what you see if you train your camera, you know, on the Chinese world are things that are so extraordinary and, you know, that you couldn't possibly imagine them, you know, in any other country. And so I think that, you know, there came a time um, when artists actually decided just, just to almost switch the kind of lens, you know, away from themselves onto society as a whole. And that's a very powerful act, actually. Mm. And I think there's a, you know, it's, it's initiated a whole um, lot of uh, practice that actually is, is, is as powerful, but in a, in a different way than the work that the artists have constructed completely so themselves. how does the portrait fit into what you've just said then? Because the portrait obviously occupied a central uh, place in the kind of uh, realist cult of Mao, obviously. 
but are you saying that, that the, the gaze has been averted from the portrait to the sort of wider wider world? Well, I mean, what is a portrait? And I, I suppose I decided to, to, to define portrait as broadly as I could. And the National Portrait Gallery was very open to this. I don't know how open, but I mean, I, I pushed it as far as I could go because, you know, I thought, well, let's make this interesting. I mean, let's make this um, just... A, we look at the face, we look at the body, we look at skin, we look at hair. You know, we use the body as a, you know, and, and the body of the artist as a point of reference. And, you know, if we look at the work as like a skin or a membrane, you know, that is the interface, you know, between the artist and their mind and their heart, you know, and the world. And I think this is, this is the role that artists have played, you know, in China and in other countries. And I think that is the function of, you know, the important function of contemporary art and certainly, you know, Uli talks about his collection in terms of it being a document. I mean, you know, this is what it's about. It's about these big, big questions. Um, so I, you know, I, I consciously wanted to, well, we had to define how, how to kind of create a, an exhibition that would fit into a relatively limited space. And Uli's got this wonderful collection, 2,200 works. So, you know, by focusing on the figure, it immediately brought that focus down. But, um, but to look at also, you know, play with the idea of a portrait, portrait of a country, you know, and so the, the themes for the exhibition about face, skin deep, body politic, self-reflex, I wanted, you know, we wanted the, the work to actually um, bear some relationship with all his collection and the interests of, of, of practitioners. So, that, you know, there's been a lot of works in all his collection referenced now. Mm. I could have done a whole show just with Mao, but I, I, that was what, that's one dimension of, of practice. There's a huge amount of performance art where the artists are using their bodies, using themselves, sometimes naked, sometimes clothed, sometimes you know, putting themselves in different extreme situations. Um, and so there's a group of performance works you know, um, that were very important in the early 90s. Um, so yeah, these are mm. some of the ways that I sought to um, broaden the focus of of what could be quite a narrow and kind of boring exhibition. Well, and I, as you say, also edit from such a remarkable, <laughs> <laughs> such a remarkable quantity and quality of work. So really, since um, we're not lucky enough to be um, in Switzerland, in Lucerne, where your home is, can you just paint a little picture for us of your house and of how the collection is integrated into the house? Because I know. Some of it is in storage, some of it is on display elsewhere, but some of it is on site at home. So do you rotate the collection? Do you change what's on your walls at home? Um, yes, I do. Uh, not easy, I mean, to illustrate my house for, <laughs> for an audience. But uh, of course the collection is, uh, is large, as you point out. Is the house purpose-built for the collection, or was it already your home and the collection has fitted into it? Uh, for me, hard to identify the purpose. It's 400 years old. Actually, it's an it's a, it's a, it's a island, a small island, and it, it used to be a castle at some point in time. So it's a very old, 400-year-old structure. And uh, the way I use the house is really for myself rather than to curate exhibitions there for a public which means things may not fit together, mm -hmm. uh, which means it's not curated. Uh, I keep changing often. I bring in new things uh, so I can see them. Uh, it's, it's more uh, that type. And uh, I also can bring in only what fits through the door. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it sounds very trivial, but you know that restricts uh, and excludes a lot of the Chinese works uh -huh. because Chinese art now is about size, right. so everything is very large. It may not fit. Also, I have visitors I have to consider uh, <laughs> that they stay, that they remain with me in the house. They are not leaving immediately, so it's a kind of selection also. A living environment is not a museum. Right, so have you had artists from China come to stay who have made site-specific works there? Has that been the case uh, yet? I have a few uh, site-specific works. Yeah. They were not made in Switzerland, but the artists came, maybe we jointly developed the concept, and then it was executed in China and, and then brought to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the experience then as a collector who has bought things that please you and that interest you, 
Can you talk a little bit about this interaction with curators? Because you've worked with Claire on this exhibition, you've worked with many other curators, and they obviously bring a Western perspective, a Western sensibility to your collection, and that comes with certain nostrums and notions. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting notion, and in fact, it was the first time that out of these 10 plus exhibitions I did, I worked with a curator who has this Western sensibility plus mm -hmm. the knowledge of Chinese mm -hmm. contemporary art and of Chinese traditional art, Chinese history. Uh, this is very rare that one individual will combine both as she did. <laughs> so it was a, a very different cooperation and the selection very much left to her of what she wanted to show. With other curators, yeah. Yeah, other curators, I would have to uh, take more uh, influence in their choices. Uh, the Western curators tend to have a bias for the political works or works uh, that the audience may consider political, which brought me many enemies in China because uh, <laughs> although nobody knows about my collection because it could never be shown there, uh, they felt this is just a collection of political works with a, a Western bias. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually not the case. Mm -hmm. But uh, the Western curators with their specific public will tend to what they think they know better. And they may, most may not be aware of their blind spot when it comes to looking at Chinese art. And uh, it's very hard to convince a Western curator and most of these gatekeepers to the global mainstream art are Western that uh, they may not have access to any type of art because they think the contrary. They think you know they have been educated and schooled and they would be able to, under any circumstances, uh, identify meaningful and not meaningful art. <laughs> I want to come back to the political aspect in a moment, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you about what motivated you to create um, your own award for artists and for critics in China? Uh, I had two reasons. Uh, one reason I felt within China, only very, very small circle was knowledgeable about contemporary art, and maybe such art award could contribute to a domestic debate about contemporary art. And the second reason was that I felt uh, the Chinese artists do not get the attention they deserve internationally because just nobody knew about Chinese art, something that's hard to imagine today where there are many exhibitions. So it gave me the opportunity to have a jury and for this jury to invite uh, these important international curators. Not that they all would then exp uh, exhibit the winner, but they would include some Chinese artists they may have liked coming uh, to the jury activities in their own projects. And, and that happened very successfully. So that was really uh, the reason to create this Artist Award. Mm -hmm. Later I created an Art Critic Award because I felt that's another topic needs more debate. So maybe the next thing would be to to um, to uh, create an award for curators. I have been thinking about that. <laughs> I have been thinking about that. Okay. Um, well, we talked before about we touched on on um, politics and and obviously your friendship with Ai Weiwei and I know you've been asked about this already this week, but. Um, Ai Weiwei has written a stinging critique in The Guardian this week of the survey show at the Hayward Gallery saying that there's no such thing as Chinese contemporary art and that art can't be created in a totalitarian state, that nothing of passion and imagination can be created in a totalitarian state. Um, and I would be interested to hear your response to what Ai Weiwei has said, uh, and Claire, yours too. So, really? <laughs> you first. Yeah. Uh, I accept it as a very radical viewpoint, as one of many. Uh, I understand where he's coming from. Uh, it, it's quite congruent with his own understanding today, maybe not 10 years ago. And uh, I would accept many other viewpoints that are not as radical. Uh, artists may have to 
accommodate themselves to the system in order to remain artists and they may take to subversive strategies which you know firsthand may appear like the spring rolls he's quoting in this uh, article but they may have very many other layers uh, which would allow say the knowledgeable reader to come to very different conclusions so I don't think we should condemn this type of art, you know, uh, and any other. There is formalist art also dealing with interesting questions, uh, has no impact on, a, on, a, on society. Mm -hmm. Still, I would think it's valid art. So I would not share this radical point of view, but yeah, it's, it's one way of looking at things. Yeah. Um, I think we need to look at the timing of this comment. Um, I think the timing is crucial. Um, Ai Weiwei um, increasingly chooses the time he makes these kinds of comments, and I, I think he was also responding to the title of the exhibition. It was called Art and Change or something, and so he was taking issue with this way of packaging uh, contemporary Chinese art for a Western um, uh, viewership, if you like. Um, and also making comment upon the way in which um, contemporary Chinese art is now increasingly being used by, by the Chinese government as a soft power way of showing, you know, that change actually, political change has actually happened when, of course, um, the political change has been um, not nearly as great as the uh, material um, change that we see in China. So, look, I think there's a whole lot happening in China right now. It's a crucial moment in the leadership transition, and so I see this as a very um, politically motivated and carefully timed um, comment, and that it's as much about, you know, uh, making us aware in the West of the way in which we too can be manipulated as it is, uh, you know, he knows many of the artists in the show, um, and so he's aware of the complexity of the situation, but I think he's really using this um, as a platform to raise a much larger question. See, I, I hadn't thought about the timing element, but, but you're, you're right that it does now seem very strategic in that sense, um, or very, very pinpointed to a particular time. Um, I, I want to make sure that you get a chance to ask um, Uli and Claire. Yes, absolutely. And I'm mindful of the opening, but I, we can't end, Uli, without talking about um, the future home of the collection, M+, in Hong Kong, and the fact that this is being viewed by the Chinese uh, on the mainland as a very controversial decision because we haven't uh, given the collection to them. So can you talk a little bit about your hopes for M Plus in 2017 when it becomes a reality? And also I was wondering, were the, were the Swiss at all disappointed that you weren't giving the collection to them? <laughs> uh, well, I have made it clear over many years already that I feel this document should be brought to China because the Chinese public doesn't know its own contemporary art. It just makes so much more sense than say in a Swiss environment or in a European or US environment. There was uh, a lot of interest but uh, I never involved in a discussion about this. Uh, what do I expect about the future what in do you N plus? Hope for it. No. Uh, I think Hong Kong is going to build a world class museum uh, with hiring the best people and being ambitious uh, as to a museum and as to content. And I saw uh, a unique possibility to, with my collection, give them a focus and give them actually a strategy. Uh, which they have not defined yet. Uh, you know, they will put this beautiful structure there, which we don't know yet, because the design competition will start. Mm -hmm. But then what? Uh, it's not so easy to come up with a, uh, yeah, an interesting concept for like a big new institution in that particular space. So now they have the opportunity to grant the number one spot for Chinese contemporary art. And, my hope is that they don't remain there, but going forward, they will continue to write the document. That is really my hope, but I think they are able to do it. I am just very sorry it could not happen uh, in mainland China. Hong Kong is also China. Yeah. Uh, that it doesn't happen in mainland China. 
uh, my first impulse would have been Beijing or Shanghai, but my discussions there just showed the they are not yet able or willing or however we want to call it to house that type of document. I wonder if you could talk briefly about um, a kind of exhibition you took with Harold Zeman in advance of the 99 Venice Biennale. It becomes somewhat legendary in its perception of Western contemporary Chinese art. I think that Venice, we saw a whole range of artists we haven't seen before that hadn't been part of the diaspora generation. Uh, I had a first contact with him, and I must say Harold Zeman probably is the most influential curator uh, that the contemporary art has seen, and he actually created the profile of the independent curator. He was the first curator to make it a profession. And uh, he one day wrote me a letter. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that when we have the consulate general here. He wrote a letter to me. We didn't know each other. And he said, I read a text by you in a catalog, and it's the first time I see a Swiss diplomat writing something intelligent. <laughs> we got in, in, in contact. So I invited him to come to China. And uh, it just happened to be the first time where I did this Chinese Contemporary Art Award. And uh, so he, as a member of the jury, could see like 100 artist documentations. And then we visited maybe 40 artist studios. And a lot of it also in the company of Ai Weiwei. Mm. And that's how the two got to know each other. Ai Weiwei at that time hadn't been exhibited at all and had been completely unknown. And in fact, I suggested to our Zima, uh, why don't you show his work as well? He's not just an interlocutor. So uh, he made the choice based on these jury meetings and on the studio visits. and. He did not have any other option because time was pressing. He had been appointed for the Venice Biennial only like seven months earlier. So uh, unlike what he normally would do, commission artists to do works, uh, he had to take uh, completed works, be it from the studios or then from our own collection. But that's how it all happened. Um, am I right in thinking that you also introduced Ai Weiwei to Herzog and de Meuron, leading to the collaboration on the bird's nest? Uh, yes, actually, these are the architects of the bird's nest, the Swiss architects. Uh, they approached me, they said, we would like to do something in China, can you help us? <laughs> so I said, the only way is we do a trip together. So we went to China, then came this competition for the bird's nest, and we had like 48 hours to qualify uh, for the competition. You know, put together a document to qualify to take part. And uh, I, at the same time, had introduced them to Ai Weiwei. And then, uh, of course, I reinforced the role of Ai Weiwei in order to create more than just a Western solitaire in Beijing mm -hmm. for the competition, uh, but something that can speak to a Chinese public and also the, to the Chinese authorities who will make a final decision. The jury had to decide three projects and then you know the Chinese authorities would make a final choice. And I knew what you know kind of perspective they would take to a project. So uh, you had to bring in a perspective which of course is not copying Chinese style because that the Chinese can do much better. Uh, so it's about creating something that alludes to Chinese culture or Chinese can associate with Chinese culture. So we came to that structure. And Ai Weiwei played an important role in, in bringing many images and, and, and prototypes and imagery uh, of, of uh, yeah, Chineseness to the process. <laughs> Inspired, and we've heard a lot about how obviously 
you've devoted so much time to your passion for contemporary Chinese art. I'm just wondering whether there's another place on earth now. Somebody asked Dave Attenborough this question about animals and they not yet discovered. But is there another uh, beckoning world for you in terms of art that we may not have discovered in, in the US? <laughs> Well, there are not so many white spots remaining on the planet, but yeah, you mentioned North Korea. I, I, was, I was also ambassador to North Korea. And uh, I, I uh, negotiated years for works, official works, that would show their leaders and then more works. So I have a small collection of North Korean art, but. I would, at this point, not advise others to follow. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not yet, perhaps. <laughs> and it is uh, basically socialist realism. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the only uh, possibility, other than traditional Korean painting. If you are into that, that's an entirely different story. But it's a very, it's a highly emotional variant of socialist realism, mm -hmm. the North Korean socialist realism. Mm -hmm. Do you have a question? But well, am I right in thinking that you were rather surprised by the, the very notion of a, a national portrait gallery before you got <laughs> to Canberra? Would you just like to comment a little bit on how you think of this as a very peculiarly Anglo-Saxon notion? I'm a little bit inhibited with having <laughs> here, fine president of a fine institution. <laughs> but uh, this is a concept very alien to us on the European continent. Mm -hmm. I think it's an Anglo-Saxon concept. And I remember my first interaction with uh, the National Portrait Gallery was not with Claire. And I was trying to determine jointly with my visitor what's a portrait, you know, in order to make the choices. And uh, I just couldn't get a very clear answer at the time. And now I understand much better why, because he probably didn't know that I have this gap of what a port national portrait gallery is. And fully realized I only did uh, when I was standing there a couple of days ago, when I saw these portraits, and I saw like in capital letters, the person depicted, and in very small letters, I saw the artist's name. <laughs> so then I started to understand. Yeah. It's not about the artist, it's really about the people. <laughs> and uh, we just don't have such type of institution, not, not we in Switzerland, and I know it on the continent. So what? There's very little differentiation between the political poster art in China and the portraits in the National <laughs> 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 Uh, an actual fun, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also had some such association. <laughs> It's a question I pose to myself at this very moment, <laughs> and uh, I haven't fully answered. Uh, it doesn't make sense for me to continue the same way as some people may call encyclopedic, or I, I don't, but some people may consider it this way. So I, I will have to focus much more. Follow artists. Uh, I personally like very much, find important, uh, very young artists, and uh, produce works together with artists. Well, I, I will uh, ask something in relation to Mark's question there. Do you think that you would, uh, or have you considered um, thinking about the connection going in a pan-Asian direction, or do you think however you end up by working with artists, it will stick to China? Uh, do both. both. <laughs> stick to China predominantly, not because it's the only good art no. in the world, but it just makes sense to me. It, I'm, I'm in so it. I know everybody yes. has experience. Mm. So uh, also, the reason which I may not have mentioned why I'm so deeply into Chinese art 
my ultimate study object is really China. It's China. So mm -hmm. I continue to study China through mm -hmm. the business, through the diplomacy, mm -hmm. politics, mm -hmm. and my most preferred way, the contemporary art. Yes. But uh, yes, it's also China have some, some Asian, but also some have. Asian art uh -huh. from time to time, something else. But my needs are finite, unfortunately. Well, everybody's <laughs> art. What I found amazing, I had no idea that Uli spoke Chinese, and of course, in his usual modest way, he said, no, you know, I can have a little conversation uh, on a very uh, superficial level. Well, I can tell you through the last week he's been chatting to everybody. I haven't understood, but my God, it didn't sound that superficial to me. So he does speak the language too. Who else have we got? Jerry, can you shout or do you want to yeah, shout? He can shout. Uh, okay. I wonder what your personal experience was of either the uh, SARS exhibition in 79 and the uh, mm. 1989 exhibition that uh, prefigured Tiananmen in so many ways, and, and how you rate the importance of those two shows uh, in the uh, history. Uh, I have seen only the second star exhibition. I wasn't uh, aware of the first one, and uh, yeah, it's a kind of coming out of contemporary art of and of Chinese contemporary artists in 79. Uh, there was this very short window of opportunity to express themselves, and uh, they made use of it, even though they were refused to enter the, the main gallery. And uh, the art there, I mean, none of us would be interested other than a Chinese art historian by that kind of art. It was very moving, but it didn't add to the discourse on global art. So. For Chinese artists, I think very important window opened, then closed, not for global art. '89, uh, I think, was a very vibrant period and very already the Chinese artists, unlike '79, had found to a language of their own. So these works were, were already distinctly different from like what some people call derivatives of Western art in 79. So it was a very different art and, and a very vibrant scene. Uh, and I think this exhibition uh, also got noted by, by the world in another way than 79 as a purely political event. Claire, what about women? <laughs> well, uh, speaking as a woman, I was determined to get a good number of women into this show. Um, I guess I wanted, you know, the exhibition to have a shape that um, that took account of what has happened in China since 1979, you know, from the Stars exhibition, you know, up until the present. Um, and so I have um, done, well, not done my best, I guess, or I, I've, I've tried to include, you know, as, as many uh, women, you know, as I could, you know, within the constraints of the subject, um, you know, figurative art. Um, and also that would fit. I mean, it's been very challenging, you know, because in curating a show, I wanted the works to converse with one another. Mm. So it's a thematic show, but there are strong kind of narratives that have a, you know, have a, a kind of time um, thing associated with them. So, the, you know, the show needed to work on the wall. So there are some very major um, Chinese women artists represented. Uh, Yin Xiu Zhen, a very major work at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, uh, work by Yu Hong, uh, another very major artist um, operating out of Beijing. A couple of very exciting works by young women artists, uh, Yang Na and Han Yajuan. Um, a very interesting focus of all these is looking at very young and upcoming artists. And so I was fascinated to see yeah, a fantastic video artist, um, new media artist, Kan Xuan. Mm. There are two uh, charming videos. Um, really quite special. Um, she studied in the Netherlands um, as well as in China, but she, I think, is a really major figure and, in fact, is going to have a... She's got a, a solo show coming up at the Ullen Center in Beijing. Um, the other interesting, really interesting phenomenon to me was the, um, the high uh, incidence of couples making art, either Ooh. together or couples, you know, artists who are working independently whose work is also represented in the show. So we've got Liu Xiaodong, and Yu Hong, husband and wife, both in the um, uh, National Portrait Gallery. We've got um, uh, 
uh, Ji Wenyu and Zhu Weibing, who, who we've seen in the Asia Pacific Triennial, who've done another small sculptural work um, in the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, there's Yin Shoujin and Song Dong, who were both represented um, in the show. Um, and of course, Sun Yuan and Peng Yu. So the old people's home, Sun Yuan is here, he's a man. Hong Yu, um, his wife, um, has been supervising the installation of their work at the Haywood Gallery in London. She couldn't be here, unfortunately. But they're also, I mean, a couple. Um, and one of the video artists, um, uh, Trong Hui and Dan Er, you know, they're a couple, and so they're working in new media. So it's a really um, significant phenomenon. And in fact, there was a show that was curated uh, in Beijing um, earlier this year or late last year called uh, The Couples Show, <laughs> responding to this phenomenon. And I, and I guess it's not surprising, given, given that artists are unique kind of beings and they have this particular, uh, I guess, uh, approach to the world. And so for, for them to come together and, you know, and, and also work as a collective, this idea of the collective is, mm. is really becoming more and more important now in contemporary practice. And so you can have a collective of two people or it can <laughs> be larger than that. We've got one last question and then I've been tapped on the shoulder. We have to remove the chairs and uh, get on with the general opening. Can you shout or should I pass it? Okay. Simple question for Audrey. How does one man You may be surprised, but that's what I wonder when I look at my <laughs> own collection. It's he's exactly got, what I wonder because he's got a very good woman. <laughs> I have a very good women in the office. <laughs> Three. Yeah. Three. Yeah. But uh, there's one thing that helped the Chinese artists really get up towards the evening. So I did my work during the day, and the first Chinese dinner usually starts at 6.30, and then maybe after 10, I could go and see the artists. They just started working after 10 p.m., I mean. So I had, uh, um, I still had half a day to go with the artists. Uh, that's like how I, yeah. And Jean, Jean, can I just say, yeah, I mean, it's a sadness for us that Marianne Heller, yes. who's the manager of the SIG collection, um, um, couldn't be here couldn't with be. us. I mean, she's so busy working on the M Plus um, collection, but exactly. she is the person who we liaised with and who was fantastic yeah. in answering all of our questions yeah. and queries and managing yeah. a lot of yeah. the work behind the scenes. Yeah. And actually, Anna Liu is also here. She's the director of the Chinese Contemporary Art Award, but I haven't seen I her. I haven't seen her She's in somewhere the outside. Yeah, Anna Liu, who's directing the Art Awards, and Marianne, who really said has done absolutely nothing Else, but the show for the last what year, really? Not a year, but months. Months and months. <laughs> All right, guys, we have to. Uh, it's been fascinating.